Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 131, Buddhist History 101. This week, we speak with Buddhist scholar Louis Lancaster about the history of Buddhism, from its early spread through the Eurasian landmass to its transition to America in the last century. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm here today speaking over Skype with Dr. Lewis Lancaster. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, I'm happy to be with you. And uh, just a little background, you were the first student to complete your PhD in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin. Does that mean you're the first student ever in the United States to complete a Buddhist studies degree? Well, you know, we have uh, many people who have PhDs from religious studies or Asian studies who did a focus on Buddhism. The Wisconsin program was the first one in the U.S. at that time that actually gave a degree in Buddhist studies, a Ph.D., and I was the first one to complete that program. Gotcha. And then you went on to teach for many years at the University of California at Berkeley. Yes, I started teaching at Berkeley in 1967 and retired in 2000. Fantastic. And uh, during that time, you are mainly teaching Buddhist studies type courses, I'm assuming. Yes, I organized the Ph.D. program in Buddhist studies at Berkeley and directed it from 1972 until I retired. It's still a very active, ongoing program, Hmm. and since my retirement, I think it's improved a lot. It's right now, I think, one of the strongest programs in the country. Fantastic. And the last thing I wanted to mention about your background is that you were the creator and now director of something called the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative. But it's apparently a, a very interesting and innovative way of looking at Buddhist studies, I hear. Yes, I uh, started that 12 years ago. Uh, the problem that we have is that we've entered the digital age. And I've felt for a long time that I wanted to be part of pushing for Buddhist studies to be in the forefront in the digital age. So in 1988, I uh, began to devote a lot of my time to the computerization of Buddhist text and worked with uh, making a complete digital copy of the Chinese Buddhist canon from the 13th century block prints in Korea. That took almost 10 years to do. Wow. And I worked with the Mahidon University in Bangkok to put the Pali Canon into a CD-ROM format. So since then, I've also added on uh, continued work with input of Sanskrit Buddhist texts. Wow. So tell me what the idea is behind the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative, because it sounds like a really interesting project. It's uh, based on the fact that in the digital age, we, of course, are getting more and more information. The amount of data that's available to us today is far beyond anything that we've had in the past. And it's not only verbal, but it's image and it's sound. 
And the problem is how, how do you catalog it and how do you deal with it? So we've come up with the idea of uh, being able to put things in a map so that all of our information is basically indexed by latitude and longitude. If you do that, then you can always find your information, even if you don't know what word to look for. You can go to a map and you enter and search through the map as the first of your look for how to handle the material. Nice. That sounds similar to things we see in a lot of Web 2.0 programs that kind of geo-map certain pictures, for instance, where you can go to a location and see all the pictures that have been taken from that area. Yes, it's making use of the software GIS, Geographic Information Systems. Since then, however, we in the, the ECI, as we call it, the Cultural Atlas, ECI have expanded beyond just uh, using latitude and longitude. We've also created ability to deal with time because at any single spot too much happens. So we worked with the University of Sydney on an early called Time Map software. Since then, Google Earth has come into existence, and we have adapted a lot of our activity to the Google Earth format because it's very robust and easy to use, and it allows you to put your points into latitude and longitude on a, on a map. And uh, we continue to develop a whole range of new ideas about interfaces and ways of accessing large amounts of digital data. Now, are you one of the few people you know doing this type of thing in the Buddhist studies arena? In Asia, there's a great deal of this, and I work closely with a number of these groups. For example, there's one in Taiwan, which people know of as C-beta, that people use for the Chinese digital uh, canon. And that group is at uh, Dharma Drum Buddhist College in Taiwan. That's one of the premier places for dealing with Buddhism and the digital age. There are groups in Korea also doing this, Japan, Tokyo University. So in the United States, our Buddhist studies, to a degree, lags behind some of these other uh, places in Asia. And that's because, of course, they have more funding for Buddhist studies, and they are taking the lead in many ways. But one of the things that I've been trying to do is to help to spark some of the direction in which this development would occur from an academic point of view. And so Ikai has, uh, has influenced a lot of people, I think. We've introduced a number of people to GIS, and we've helped a number of groups get started. We're just about to launch some of our own projects. In October, we're going to launch an Atlas of Chinese Religions. And uh, that will be done in Taiwan. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. It's very active. Yeah, it sounds like it. And is this the type of thing, Ikai, that only academics could access? Or is this something that anyone could access? Oh, no. It's absolutely free. It's open. All our software is open source. People can use it. 
Uh, one of the things that I've tried to do is to, uh, as much as possible, keep information open and available to everyone. Nice, nice. Well, we'll definitely put a link um, to Ikai in our episode notes. But what's the URL, just in case people want to go straight there? Yes, it's just uh, ecai.org. Nice. And it'll get you there. Perfect. Cool. That sounds like an amazing uh, project. And that kind of fits in with some of the the types of questions I wanted to ask you about because I watched a, a video where you're giving a lecture on uh, Buddhism in a global age of technology. And one of the things you did in the very beginning of that interview was try to explain to those people that may not be familiar with Buddhism, um, which of course on a show like Buddhist Geeks, most of our listeners <laughs> are. But um, yes. one thing you said that was interesting that I didn't actually know was that Buddhism was the first world religion. And I wondered if you could Let's say a little bit about what that means. Well, I feel that when you define world religion as, as a religion which breaks free of its geographic homeland, breaks free of the languages of its homeland um, and its cultural patterns, that Buddhism was the first one, that first religion that I know of, that we can really see all of these attributes. It uh, first spread throughout the South Continent and then spread along the Silk Road through Central Asia into East Asia and then along the maritime routes in Southeast Asia. It found its way into many different languages. It was what I call a, a portable sanctity or religion. Mm. It was not fixed by, you know, as say in, in traditional Hinduism, you're born to it, otherwise you can't have it. Otherwise, you're out of caste, and out of caste, you can't be a priest. A Brahmin priest is by birth. That's a kind of fixed sanctity. With Buddhism, uh, they really did uh, have the ability to follow the merchants across Central Asia and along the maritime routes. And in that sense, I call them a world religion. Christianity later on is a world religion as well as Islam. To some degree, Islam has struggled with what it does with Arabic as a fixed language, and that means that people have to learn Arabic in order to really get part of the tradition. With Buddhism, translation into other languages was just accepted and a normal part of its expansion into the world. So in that sense, it, it was unique for its time, and I can't find another religious pattern that has been able to escape from all of these fixed patterns of geography, language, and culture. Very interesting. And, and another thing you mentioned about the portable sanctity is that sacred relics actually play a huge part in how Buddhism was able to spread. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, because I'd never, even uh, having a degree in religious studies, really run across much information about the importance of sacred relics in, in the Buddhist tradition. Well, I think all you have to do is to look at the archaeological evidence, that is, the number of stupas that you find for Buddhism. <laughs> and there are you know, tens of thousands of stupas. In the early days, uh, we know that there was no use of the Buddha image. 
Instead, people simply gathered around stupas where there were relics. I first kind of tumbled to the importance of relics of all places in Korea. There is a monastery in Korea that has a large relic platform which is said to hold a relic of the Buddha. And the main hall in that monastery has no images. It's the only major building in Korean Buddhism that has no image at all in it. And when you ask the locals, well, why don't you have a Buddha image in here at the altar, which is just blank? <laughs> and they say, well, we have the Buddha's body, so we don't need an image. We have his relic. And that got me thinking that, in fact, Buddhism started as a relic cult and only much later developed into an image cult. Interesting. And that somehow was part of how it was able to spread to other countries. Yes, the relic is is really the most, in terms of Buddhism, was the most portable kind of sanctity that you can imagine. You could take a relic anywhere and where you put it and built the stupa, that site becomes sacred. So therefore, Buddhism could create its own sacred spots all over the world. There's no place that you couldn't take a relic. This is in very marked contrast to a lot of fixed ideas about image and relics. Some relics, it's thought you can't move them from their home place. Otherwise, they'll just go back magically, I suppose you would say. And the same with image. Some images can be moved, some can't. The Buddhist images were always movable. People could carry them from place to place. So, Images were portable, relics were portable, texts were portable, texts could be translated into many different languages, monks could go from one place to another and not be polluted. These were all uh, signs of how portable Buddhism was. Wow. So in that sense, it makes me think, you know, like the Buddha and some of the early Buddhist community were sort of innovative in a way. I don't know that they were consciously choosing to do that, but it sounds like they were it's sort of innovative as far as a religion goes. Yes, uh, I think they were both and. That is, they were innovative in, in a number of ways. And yet, at the same time, I'm convinced that in order to be effective, they had to speak to their time and place. I've sometimes called Buddhism a rainforest religion in India that much of what it, uh, and the way in which it developed and structured itself was based on the monsoon, the forest, as opposed to the areas of urban islands in the forest. So I can see that it was a religion of its time and place, and what we are not so sure about is how some of the things which were found in Buddhism that aren't found in the Brahmanic tradition, where did they come from? Some people feel the Buddha invented them. Some of them, I suspect, were just part of a general cultural life, which we don't hear about. If, for example, the Buddha did allow female ascetics. I think that was probably one of the most uh, what was the greatest departure, perhaps, from 
the religious life in India, there are not many religions that have allowed women to be religious ascetics, that is, to practice the ascetic life and to achieve the states of that asceticism. Even though later on Buddhists have acquired some very anti-women concepts, if you will, and put women into a secondary position culturally, when you go back and look at the tradition itself, I think that we have to say that Buddhism was very innovative in the way in which it opened itself up to women. And one thing I found interesting while you were in that same lecture talking about Buddhism and its history and its spreading, you mentioned that Buddhism really impacted what would become Christianity through the Greek culture. And I, there's usually a common belief that Buddhism and Western society had very little exposure to one another prior to, say, the 20th century. And it seemed like that wasn't true, and you're giving some very specific examples for how Buddhism had impacted uh, the Western society. And I was wondering if you could share a little of those with us. Yeah, I've come to believe that we've made a big mistake in our studies. We have separated things into East Asia and Central Asia and South Asia and Southeast Asia, the Near East. All of these are divisions of the Eurasian landmass. And none of them, in some sense, are adequate divisions. It's no more adequate than dividing things up by nation-states. China of today is not the same as China of the Tang Dynasty, nor China of the early Zhou dynasties. So, that's why I think that when we look at how we're going to study Buddhism, I want to stop studying it as these discrete units and study it as Eurasian. And if you do that, and you start thinking in those terms, then we know that across the trade routes and the mercantile communication that was taking place, ideas were flowing back and forth across the trade routes in ways which we don't recognize if we just limit our study to South Asia, then we don't know what's going on on the Silk Road or the trade routes. I believe that Buddhism had the first uh, professional monastics, that the idea of a monastery where people live by rule was a Buddhist invention. I believe that the use of relics and the relic cult that developed was also something which the Buddhist brought into, into full use. This went across the trade routes. Christianity admits that the first relic came from India. They said it was St. Thomas who had gone to India. His relic is returned to Syria. I believe that the if you look at Buddhism as a Eurasian religion, then you have to say they had shared these forms and these institutions, and they were picked up and developed in particular and different ways in the western part of the Eurasian landmass. Conversely, I think that the Greek ideas of 
portrait imagery in three dimension, came in with the Bactrian kingdom in Central Asia, and that they gave us the real uh, model for the Buddha image. So I think that Gnosticism is filled with things that sound very Buddhist. We know there were many Indian merchants and officials in what we call the, the Near East or the Middle East, and that we need to study this. Um, I'm very delighted that uh, Dorothy Wong down at the University of Virginia is setting up a conference next year called Crossings as an attempt to break down these these strict barriers between regions and try to see uh, the art world in a, in a wider sense, too. This whole conversation's making me wonder, as a Western Buddhist convert, and many people that listen to the show probably would identify themselves similarly, people that have come to, to Buddhism but were not raised Buddhist, they may be practicing meditation or you know, reading uh, contemporary literature. They may even be doing some historical study of Buddhism. But do you feel that understanding Buddhism's history and the way that it spread and its kind of unique contributions to the world, do you feel like that's important for, say, these type of Western Buddhist converts to know? And, and if so, why? I'm doing an online course at the University of the West this summer just for fun, really. I've, I have never tried to do it, but I'm trying to talk about Buddhist influences in America. And in order to teach that course, I said to them, you first have to recognize where did the influences come into America. It didn't come directly from Asia at the first. It came through Europe. It was the Europeans who got a hold of some of the ability with Sanskrit and Pali language, started translating sutras. Those ideas were introduced to the transcendentalists in New England. So we've got, we had that form of influence that came in. Then when immigrants from Asia started to come, first the Chinese, then the Japanese, then the Koreans, and later, of course, all the Southeast Asians, that brought another whole wave of influence for American Caucasians who have become Buddhist converts somebody has called them nightstand Buddhist <laughs> they're the ones who read the books mm-hmm. and listen to the podcasts <laughs> <laughs> and listen to podcasts <laughs> so these as contrasted to immigrant groups who were born into it or whose families have been Buddhist and and who represent that tradition from their home countries. So many influences have come to us. I think that as we look, uh, for example, recently in New York, I went uh, back just to see it because I really was interested in it and I, I was not disappointed. Guggenheim Museum had a large exhibit called The Third Mind, which was tracing the Asian influences on art in Europe and America. And it was just an eye-opener, I think, for many people who went to see it. 
who knew that almost everybody that you've ever heard of in more modern times was influenced from Asia and that uh, people were reading books about Asia. It, it, it was the ideas were coming into their art. Whoever thinks about Whistler and his mother as being influenced from Asia, and yet not only was influenced from Asia, but it was probably very much influenced he was by Buddhism. So I think that we have so many influences that have come toward us. Teaching at Berkeley over the years, I watched the flood in 1967, the summer of love in San Francisco. That fall, I started teaching the first, at the moment, the only course on Asian religions on the Berkeley campus. Well, you can imagine those kind of students that I got <laughs> and the numbers. It was amazing. People were being attracted to Buddhism from this counterculture movement. Later on, after the Vietnamese War, it was just as if overnight it changed. My classes changed, and instead of counterculture, they filled up with the growing number of Asian immigrants who were looking for their roots. And I finally had a kind of standing joke. So many people said the same thing to me about why they took my course that I would ask at the beginning of the year, will everyone whose grandmother is Buddhist raise their hand? Because people would tell me, I want to know what my grandmother was talking about because my grandmother was a Buddhist. My parents were, but my grandmother was. And it was interesting that at least half of every class for a while was filled with my grandmother was a Buddhist people. And then that changed again. And by the end of my teaching career, the Caucasians had come back again. That's where we are in a sense today. Buddhism has thrived because in 1965, we changed our immigration law and that allowed a flood of immigrants to come into the United States and that's what brought on this enormous increase in Buddhist activity for Thai, Laotian, Taiwanese. It's all been based on, the, on that change of law. Since 9-11, there's been a different feeling. We closed down our visas. We made it very difficult for people to come in and that, again, changed the tenor of what our country was like. Whether or not we will open our doors again, as we did before 9-11, I don't know. But these influences come and go in great waves of ideas, practices, laws, people. So I don't know that that answers your question. It's complex. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun topic. But it, it sounds like you're saying that having an understanding of of how Buddhism has come into our current culture through the many different cultures that it did come through, first through Europe, like you're saying, and then later through Asian cultures, that that somehow, does that give us a better sense of what Buddhism is, the way we're currently practicing it? Does it help inform our current practice as practicing Buddhists? Well, I think uh, we certainly can see that 
Buddhism in, in America is primarily lay Buddhism. It is not monastic. There are monks and nuns, to be sure, but the large number of nightstand Buddhists are lay people. They have to make a living. There's no community to support them if they were to become monks and nuns. Some people have gone over to these new immigrant communities and become monks and nuns in them where there is a, enough of a support base. But I think that uh, what the Americans are doing is to really experiment with a Buddhism which is lay-oriented, which is based in education, and that that influence has begun to spread to Asia. And Asians have become much more aware of the need to educate their members than was ever the case in the past. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.